Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hey guys, on today's show, I had the pleasure of speaking with Mel from Mel and Dave, the investor couple. They started their investment journey in Ontario and now have more than 200 doors in five different countries. Pretty amazing. And they've used other people's money, OPM, to grow their portfolio. They also have a coaching program that focuses on teaching investors how to use OPM to grow and scale your portfolio. We start off the show with Mel sharing how what could have easily been a tragic event changed their mindset and trajectory in life. I think you'll feel inspired by the show and definitely get a lot of value from it. Okay, Mel, well, I want to just really welcome you to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. If you could just tell our listeners about yourself and where you're located, that kind of stuff to start off the show. Yes, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm Mel Dupree from Investor Mel and Dave. Dave is busy uh, with another live right now as well. But essentially, we're full-time real estate investors. We specialize in buying properties using none of our own money and no joint venture partners. So that way we keep 100% of the cash flow, the appreciation, the equity. There's no sharing in the decision-making, except for with Dave, of course. We bought over 240 units throughout the years in five different countries. So we are Canadians as well. We're located in North Bay, Ontario, but we invest in Canada, in the U.S., in Costa Rica, in Dominican, and Mexico. Amazing. I got to ask about Costa Rica. So how long ago did you invest there? That was last year. We've been there a couple of times now. And both times we actually stayed at one of the properties that actually had two of the properties that we purchased there. One was a newer built. The other one was we did more or less a burst strategy by a distance, of course, because I have three kids. They're in school. So we can only go away for so long at once. But it's pretty neat because we essentially used the exact same strategies and applied it in Costa Rica. Of course, certain things are different because it's not like in Ontario where there's a financial mortgage institution that lends in first place, but we still use OPM, other people's money to buy it as well. Amazing. We were there for New Year's for 12 days as a family and we loved it. The kids loved it and had such a good time. I just, it's so beautiful and relaxed and everybody's kind and happy and yeah, I love it as well. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. And now can we get a little bit of backstory? I know there were some kind of scary moments that basically you guys were heading to a course and it kind of inspired you to maybe change your direction in life. Can you kind of touch on that and explain what happened there? Yeah, I'll kind of explain a bit of our history. So Dave was a full-time firefighter. I was teaching full-time at our, or sorry, I was working full-time at our local college and teaching part-time classes. And we had already purchased quite a few properties. We did the 12 and 12 the previous year, 12 properties in 12 months. That was six units, but we were on our way to a real estate investing conference and we were passengers in the back of the SUV. And out of nowhere, a careless transport driver who was driving in between lanes hit a vehicle that hit us. We instantly hit the guardrail and started rolling across the highway. We landed upside down. And uh, for those who happen to know the area, it's near Tender's Wonderland and near Toronto. So our vehicle was completely crushed. It was upside down, crushed. You can't believe that we survived. It makes no sense how we were able to survive so it's such a horrific crash. But we did. And we were transported right away by ambulance, of course, to the hospital. And, you know, it was a life-changing moment. Number one, of course, it was very scary. I have three beautiful kids and that's I thought I was dying thinking they'll never see me again they're never going to see Dave again but it, it was that life-changing moment where it was really like what are we going to be known for with our lives you know we have all these real estate investments but our kids don't even know how to do any of it because we haven't told anybody we used to not tell anything to anyone we had the scarcity mindset 
and the car crash completely changed how we looked at things and um we still decided to go to the conference despite being extremely sore um <laughs> and, and that's when we I decided I mean, we're not authors, but we decided to, hey, let's do this. Let's write a book. So we wrote, we decided that weekend we're going to write a book. We released it about six months later. It became a number one bestseller on Amazon. And we started teaching other people how to do this too. So it was really, um, you know, now we have an action family mentoring program. But that was really the reason that started. I never thought about being a coach. I just wanted to buy real estate. And I did. And I acquired a lot of it. But after the car crash, I had a severe concussion. So I was off for quite a while. And it definitely gave me time to reflect and it created a lot of anxiety for me to go back to work. And it just made me realize that I always knew I was an entrepreneur. I mean, I obviously have bought a lot of properties beforehand and all that, but it just, it became very evident. I just couldn't go back for myself. And the only reason I was able to not go back, because of course, after a couple of months, I was starting to feel better. And when it was time to go back to work, Dave said, just don't go back. And the only reason I had the financial freedom, the choice to not go back is because I had already invested in real estate. And that's how powerful it is. It really gave me the freedom because it's not just about the cash and the trips and all these great things that come with it as well, but it was a freedom of choice when I really needed it. Yeah. Well, that's incredible. Kind of scary, obviously, but inspiring all at the same time. And the mindset shift as well that happened after that. Yeah. So I used to live in North Bay because my dad was in the military. I was on the army base there for a number of years. What a small world. eh? I know. And we used to go to the uh, Canada's Wonderland as well. I'm sure it's changed, you know, significantly since I was there, but it was a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. We would go during the off season. So then I could just run from like roller coaster to roller coaster. Avoid those long lineups. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Kind of one of your niches or one areas you guys focus on as coaches is OPM. So other people's money, right? Yes. Could you kind of give the listeners maybe a 10,000 foot view of what that is and how you guys have kind of learned to, I guess, invest in more properties? Yes, absolutely. OPM. I remember hearing about the concept. And at first we thought, is this even legal? I have three kids. I can't go to jail. Like, how do you do this? Why would anybody want to do that? But essentially for that 20 or 25% down, when you're buying income properties, you don't have to be using your own money. Yes, you need to come up with that deposit, but it doesn't have to be your own money. And there's three different ways that we do that. And quite often we do owner financing where the owner of the property holds financing for you. And we can kind of dive into why would anybody want to do that? Because I'm sure that your listeners are likely questioning that. Why would anybody do that? But so using owner financing, another way is using somebody's secured funds like RRSPs or ESPs or in the States 401k are also using promissory notes where it's essentially somebody might have a line of credit. They don't want to be doing what you're doing and I'm doing and buying real estate, but they know that real estate over time, it's statistically proven that it always increases in value. Yeah, for sure. Can we kind of step through each one for the listeners? So for owner financing, are you talking about a, a VTB or also maybe an agreement for sale? Or is there one or the other that you're yeah, looking for? Exactly. Vendor take back, seller financing, owner financing. These are all the, the same words. So essentially, this is when the owner of the property holds part of the financing for you, just like a bank would. And I've done it on both sides. So the, the neat thing about it, I purchased some properties, a lot of properties, with owner financing where they help financing for me. And I'm also holding financing because of course, throughout the years I sell some of my properties and I actually, the monopoly game, right? You put the money at work elsewhere. And I'm actually holding financing on four of my properties. I've never met these people. I have no idea what they even look like. Why would I do that as an owner of a property? Easy because it benefits me. So number one, I'm getting paid interest and I don't even have the property anymore. I was able through the negotiations to get the price that I wanted for the property. 
as well as from capital gains. That's a huge reason why owners of properties wants to do a VTB with you is because it benefits them from capital gains or tax perspective. Tax perspective. I can't speak today. I've spoken all morning. <laughs> but yeah, that's why they do it. So it's interesting. It must have been, so you haven't met these people and you've done a VTB. Is it because it's through a referral, a trusted source, someone you know? No, not at all. It's because the numbers make sense. Like when I look at the deal, I know that they have a clear exit strategy on how to pay me back. I know that real estate over time is going to go up in value. I know that the property I sold still had some opportunity to increase in value and they'll be able to get that lift or that forced appreciation and pay me back in a you know a couple years. And worse comes to worse. If something happens, I still have a property that cash flows overall that performs well. I know it's a solid building. Otherwise, I wouldn't have bought it in the first place. So that's why I felt comfortable. It really wasn't about the person. It's the real estate that went with it. And I knew that I had my exit strategy. We're very, very big on the exit, we call it. And that means you don't use other people's money if you don't know how you're going to pay them back. So number one, you need to know that as an investor. And if you're an owner of the property, they're going to want to make sure that you know how to pay them back as well. Yeah, 100%. And then, so the next one you mentioned was RRSPs. Maybe we could just get you to explain that. Yeah, so you're not going to be using your own money, although there is a way that you can actually use your own money to invest in different countries like US or Costa Rica. Uh, but when you're Canadian, your own RRSPs, you can do it for your own first property, your first home. But when it comes to income property, you can't use it. However, you can use other people's RRSPs, for example, or secured funds to buy properties. And you're not taking it out that would not make sense. Nobody would want to do that. You get taxed at 40% or so. So it's just a matter of transferring funds. But that's why people do it. If they're not happy with their current return and they see the value of real estate and is secured by real estate as well, this could be a really, really great opportunity for people to lend their RSP money to somebody else and make interest on it. And then in return, I get to buy a property. That's actually how we bought our lake house. And so we bought our lake house or a cottage. First place was a financial institution who was open to creative financing. Again, if you're going to a bank with this, they're going to say no. So if you're getting no's, I got a lot of no's at the beginning, but it's because you're not using the right people. But I went to a financial institution who's open to creative financing. Then Mrs. RSPs lended me her money for the your 25% down. Interesting. And I do find it interesting how you say you're not going to pay the 40% taxes. Can you just maybe touch on some of the rules? Like, so if someone did use their RSPs, maybe a family member, or friend to invest, when does that money have to be put back in or how long can it be kind of put in a property for? Is there any rules? There are some rules like you can't say like, hey, I'll lend you mine. You like it can't be arm's length where you're just changing like, in between two people like your partner. You can't say, hey, I'll use your RSPs to buy property. And like, not. exactly. So you can't lend to your spouse. It can't be a parent. It can't be arm's length, essentially. So it does have to be somebody outside of your you know inner circle type of thing. But again, this is where people do it, because let's say they're getting, I don't know, four or five percent or 6% interest, and you're able, depending on the deal, to offer them a, a nicer return. Maybe it's 8%, maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 12%, depending on the deal and where you're investing. For them, they're like, wait a second, I can make the same amount of more money. It's not cost me anything to do this transaction. It's still backed up with real estate. And that's why people do it. Not everybody's going to want to do it. Some people you know, don't feel comfortable in doing that kind of thing, but a lot of people do as well because it is secured by real estate. And as far as the length of term, typically it's a little longer, like one year's, in my opinion, is typically not very long, especially for RSPs by the time you pay the lawyers and you get everything done. It's just often may not be long enough. But again, every deal is going to be different. It might be a three-year term, might be five-year term, could be longer. It's just, it depends on the person, what they're looking for as well. And the actual deal, like every single deal of mine, when I negotiate 
literally looks different. I don't have a cookie cutter like, oh, I always charge this interest. I always do this. No, it's not like that because it's customized based on the performance of the actual property. For sure. Now you did touch on mention something else. I've got to ask about this. So you said about other countries. So now if I have RSPs, could I buy a property in Costa Rica? With my RSPs? I'm pretty sure Costa Rica's on the list. I'd have to verify. I know in the States you can. So yes, yep. you can use your own personal RSPs to fund that 20 or 25% down to buy your own place, say an Airbnb in Florida, for example. That's what I'm planning to do because I used to invest in RSPs before I was an investor. So that's what I'm planning to do with mine. Amazing. Yeah, I've got some light bulbs going off here myself. <laughs> you like um, Costa Rica, you like yeah, yeah, that's so. right. I have RSPs sitting there really doing nothing for me. Yeah, and that's the thing, like we call it dead money. It's just, it's sitting there. Yeah, it's making you some money, but with inflation and everything else, it's likely in most situations, not really, you know, that much, right? And if you're able to invest it, again, wisely, strategically, whether it's buy your own property or even lend it out to somebody who knows what they're doing, that has the exit strategy. And again, it's a win-win. And that's how we do business. Like, yes, I, we bought a lot of properties throughout the years. I made a lot of money doing so, but don't get me wrong. My investors won as well, right? They made a lot of money that they wouldn't have made otherwise. And they're able to do things that they wanted, whether it's a new deck or on a, an extra trip a year, those things too. Yeah, for sure. And then the third one you mentioned was promissory notes. Now, if you could explain that for the listeners. Yeah, so promissory note is a fancy word for a contractual agreement, essentially. So this is where um, it gives you a lot of flexibility. Typically, the interest will be a little bit higher because it's not typically secured, although it can be, but often it's not. But essentially, it's when, let's say you have $100,000 sitting in your line of credit. And I want to buy a property and I'm looking for 50000 to go towards the deposit and maybe 50000 for the renovations. I can use a promissory note to buy and fund that deal or even for renovations. Like when we first started in real estate, we didn't have that much money to start with. Um, so we use a lot of promissory notes as well just for renovations and those kind of things to force the appreciation, increase the value of the property, and then we're able to pay back the promissory note to lender and also be left with a nice profit. Nice. And then you had mentioned that it could be unsecured and also secured. Could you explain the difference between those? It just depends if you secure it on an actual property, right? If you're kind of like the owner of the property, right? It's secured because it's more or less a second mortgage on it. So that's what we did on one of the properties. One of my lenders, she wanted a bit more security. So it was on a specific deal. The interest that I gave her though, because of that extra security, because I couldn't just use it for whatever I wanted, was a little lower. But again, it just depends on how, I guess, risk tolerance or how comfortable people are with lending money. I find over time when people get to know, like, and trust you, of course, it gets easier, right? My lenders have been with us for many years now. And like, you know, even if I don't have a property, like, Mel, put my money back to work right now. I'm like, well, hang on. I, I got to make sure I find the right property where I know I can pay you back, right? So it's that trust as well. In a sense, they are investing based on you. Compared to owner financing, they still are in a way. But it's really, it's the building. They know the building, they know the location, they probably know the tenants. It's a little bit different than a promissory note. Okay. And then RRSPs are always secured by government regulation. Is that correct? Right. Exactly. Always secured. Any idea what the percentages would be? So you kind of got three different ways to use OPM. Are you kind of finding one area is just kind of getting more traction? And does it change depending on what's going on in the market? It can change. Like right now, I'm definitely seeing an increase in owner financing compared to say two years ago when the market was super, super hot and places were just selling extremely quickly because while well, the interest rates are a little higher at the bank, the owners may not be selling their property quite as quickly because 
Not everybody can do that, right? But if they want to sell, right, they're ready to exit the deal and I can make it a win-win for them where my interest is not too high and I can sell cash flow from the property. Yeah, so I'm definitely seeing an increase in the past, say, six months or so in uh, owner finance deals. Yeah, that makes sense. And then um, I guess the regulations and rules around marketing. So let's say someone's like, oh, I got this great idea. I'm going to use someone else's RSPs. And I'm going to post on a Facebook group. What kind of uh, regulations are there to, that people yeah, have to know? Yeah, about? you don't want to have big billboards saying, I mean, you can talk about your experience if you've done it and those kind of things. But yeah, you don't want to be yelling out, I'm going to put your RSPs to work type of thing. There are some regulations around that. So it's more having conversations about it, perhaps talking about a deal if once you've done a couple of it, and then your people will often reach out to you about it. Yeah. And then, so I guess for, for someone just starting out, obviously you guys have a coaching program and we'll kind of talk about that a little bit later, but someone starting out, how did they get, uh, I guess, their name out there? How do they get people to trust them, you know, and actually kind of get a deal like this? Uh, yeah. And I mean, <laughs> A great easy way is definitely owner financing because it's even less about you as a person. And yeah, some of them I went out for lunch with and, you know, we dined them and then they got to know us. But some of them we didn't at all. You know, Costa Rica, he lives in a different country. I can't remember where. Like we never met. I don't know what he looks like. I don't know if he knows what I look like or if, if he Googled us or not. But I want you to remember this. Yes, now we have a large following on social media and we're all over the place. But when we first started doing creative financing, we were also just getting started just like you know you're brand new to it as well right and it's really about making it a win-win and think about it this way every single owner of properties across Canada and the U.S. and even different countries have the potential of being one of your private lenders I mean there's people out there you gotta get comfortable with getting no's I get no's all the time not everybody's gonna want to fund the deal some people don't want to do owner financing they just don't feel comfortable with it or they need your all their money because they're buying something different or perhaps they just, yeah, they need it for retirement, but some people do for the reasons that I explained earlier. Yeah, for sure. And what are some of the risks involved for you as an investor? And also, I guess, on the other side, for the, those people that are, you know, maybe private investors on the deal? Yeah, absolutely. So you want to make sure that you never, ever borrow anybody's money without knowing what you're doing. I mean, that's just the reality. When I heard about OPM, that was definitely my fear. It held me back, actually, for quite a long time because I thought, well, like, number one, I have my own family to take care of. And number two, the last thing I want to do is use somebody else's money and not being able to pay them back. You're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble if you do that. And, and I'm sure you know, nobody wants that. So don't go into it blindly. You need to know how to do it. You need to know how to exit before you enter. And this should not be an emotional decision. This all needs to be strategic, numerical. Um, if you don't know how you're going to pay back the lender, it doesn't matter which way, whether it's owner finance or RSPs or promissory note, don't do the deal. Like if the deal is not strong enough that it can't sustain itself, you're not sure. I've had some great deals coming across my desk where it was a perfect area. Tenants were amazing. It cash flowed from day one, but I didn't have my exit strategy. Everything else perfect, perfect location. Everything else, you know, made sense to me. But I, when I put it inside my matrix, I just, I didn't have my exit strategy. So I had to pass on the deal. So that would be my biggest worry for people is that you try to do this. It's exciting. You hear like, wait a second, I can do this too. And then you do it without the right information and then you don't have your clear exit strategy and you're in a situation that you don't want to be with, right? Like that's one thing, not having the right kind of conditions on deals when it comes to creative finance. I mean, there's a lot of different things that I've definitely done wrong as well throughout the years, right? Just even as an investor, let alone using the creative financing. So making sure that you know how to do it properly. And as a lender, same thing as well. You know, you're going to do your due diligence on the person lending you the money. 
do they have experience? And if they don't have experience, well, do they have any kind of education on it? Did they get a coach that specialized in that? You know, what other strengths do they have? And when it comes to finding people, it's really just being out there a little bit, right? Like, and I'm not saying you have to post, you know, five times a day on social media, but you know, maybe you're letting people know that, hey, you're an investor now and you're looking for deals and that, hey, did you know that any owner of finance deals out there, let me know. And people will, that's what happened to us was just starting to talk about a little bit on social media. And then, you know, everybody's in our city started talking about it and we were starting to get more deals and, and just don't be afraid to ask. Like you're going to get some no's if you do creative financing, not everybody's going to want to do it. And that's completely fine. It doesn't mean you're doing anything bad. It just means it's not a, a right fit for them. I've had a lot of people that said no to me. And then two, three years later, then they're ready to invest. It just wasn't the right time for them. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And what are some typical exit strategies? Can you kind of touch on those for the listeners? Quite often, overall, I like to buy and hold the majority of my properties until at least it gets a nice lift. So typically, I buy and hold my properties. So I need to find underperforming properties. I don't just count on natural appreciation, although I know some people do. I like to force appreciation. And I do also like to invest where returns are best, but finding properties where I can also take control of that. So if there is a shift in the market, I'm not just counting on natural appreciation. I'm actually forcing the appreciation, right? And I'm not saying it has to be these huge gut jobs. Yes, I've done many of those in the past, but it could just maybe needs new paint. Maybe the counter top is orange and needs to be changed and updated to a, you know, Home Depot, nice gray that's a little bit neutral. And, and, you know, those little things can make a big difference and keeps the tenants happy as well. Right. So you're combining the OPM with basically like a burger strategy. Exactly. Yeah. So that's one way of doing it where I can really force the appreciation. Um, I mean, you can also do flips. I've done some of them, um, but typically I prefer to, you know, you could sell it, for example, that would be like more of a plan B for me, not definitely not a plan A, right? I like to refinance it, pay back the lender, sell cash flow and hang on to the property until I'm ready to sell it or just, you know, hang on to it. Yeah. Yeah. As a coach, I know you guys, obviously hundreds, maybe thousands of people that you get to see and be involved with their deals. Can you share an example or maybe something common that you see with deals when they do go sideways and maybe some learnings from that? Yeah, I mean, sideways, a lot of it is don't be afraid to walk away from the deal. I see a lot of my students, you know, who post that they did their due diligence and they didn't end up buying the property, which it's not really sideways. I mean, that's best case scenario. That's exactly what I want them to do. It's frustrating when it happens. It happens to me as well, where, you know, I'm excited about a property. I have the funds for the properties. I'm doing everything. And then I'm working through my due diligence list. And, you know, I find out something that I didn't know before. It's like, oh, now I'm in this situation. I've already maybe spent some time in it, maybe a little bit of money as well, right? Getting inspections done, those kind of things and having to walk away. And if I were to share a tip with the listeners is, don't be afraid to walk away. Don't be too proud to walk away. Sometimes it hurts. If you've told your family, I'm buying this fourplex and you know, you're finally doing this. And, and then all of a sudden you're doing your due diligence and you're finding out that, oh, this wasn't quite what I thought. And you have to walk away for the greater good of your long-term portfolio, then walk away. It's okay. I've walked away from many deals. The first few, you know, kind of a little embarrassed, but then I realized that no, it's okay. That's what being a successful real estate investor, you know, that's what we do. We're not afraid to walk away if we need to. Yeah, for sure. And then how important is it to have the right lawyers involved with these transactions? Oh, mistakes, mistakes. I've done many of them throughout the years, and that's definitely one of them. Corey cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we grew really, really quickly. We 12 properties in 12 months. And then we had a couple before then, and then we continued to buy a couple more. And I believe we had about 18 properties 
and we weren't structured properly. So now all of a sudden we have all these properties and their personal names, our structure was all off. Like we had to restructure everything. And at this point we already have a large portfolio. So it costs us a lot of money. You have to make sure you're working with investor focused lawyers, but also investor focused accountants, investor focused insurance company, investor focused agents, right? Who knows, who understands vendor take backs, right? I mean, obviously we're talking about it here. Like it's important that people know uh, if you're dealing with an agent that doesn't believe in it, that they're probably not going to be the, do the, the best deal in negotiating on your behalf as well. Cause yeah, there's off market deals, but oftentimes like many of my properties, I definitely deal with investor focused agents as well. So it's important that they are able to articulate and explain certain things because the owner of the property will probably have questions if you're trying to negotiate owner financing, for example. Yeah, for sure. And then we kind of touched on it earlier, but is the sweet spot for a deal that you structure for the Burr strategy, is it about three to five years, would you say, or is there a different number? Yeah, I mean, it used to be even tighter. Like I used to do one, two years, but I always give myself extra time for sure, right? Multiple layers of exit strategy. So although if I think I can do it in a year or two, after COVID, like sometimes I was even able to do it sooner, but after COVID, the restrictions got a little tighter. So definitely more than a year, I would say. Yeah, two to three years is very normal. But my terms with the majority of my lenders, I typically do it longer. Again, just to give myself some extra layer time if I need to pay them back. Yeah, that makes sense. And then what happens? Let's say, you know, everything's good. You got the deal. You maybe used OPM. But that investor comes to you after 12 to 18 months and says, oh, actually, something's changed on my end. and I want my money back. What happens in those situations? Yeah, and that depends where people probably are at, right? If if this is their first property and they were really counting on the terms, you know, they may need to, okay, I, you know, I'll do my best. I can pay you back. Let's say it was 100K. I'll give you 40 right now. I can pay you back this, but I need a couple extra months. The nice thing is as you grow your portfolio, you're going to have more flexibility. I mean, that's just the reality where if ever I'd have one of my lenders coming to me and say, Mel, I'm in a situation, I need my money back. I would just shift things around and, okay, well, instead of, as maybe I'm planning on, on doing this and putting money here, I'll just essentially I work with my lenders, right? And, and I think most people, as much as possible, you need to work back with them. Now, don't put yourself in a position where you're going to be hurting the rest of your portfolio. But typically, again, if you have multiple layers, and Dave and I, we discover ourselves as onions, we have a lot of layers of protection for those kind of things, right? So, yeah, if ever somebody needs their money back, they have an emergency and they really need like, of course, I'm going to try to work with them in a situation on paying them back fully. That gets easier as you have more and more, essentially, money, right? When I first started, I didn't have money, so that it was a little harder to do so. But as much as possible, if you're able to work with the lenders or have the conversation, make a plan with them as well. Yeah, for sure. And now, let's say I was approaching you, found you guys online. I said, oh, I've got you know RRSPs uh, that I would like to invest what would be maybe like an elevator pitch or if you and I were to sit down for coffee, what would you say to me like as a possible investor, some of the benefits I could see from investing? Yeah, I mean, the, the nice thing about it is that it's secured. If you're using RSPs, it's secured against a certain property. I would show you because it's on one specific property. I'd have to see if I have a deal that I'm currently looking for an investor on. Or otherwise, I'd say, you know, let me find the right deal because I need to know that I can pay you back. I'd show you my deal. I'd show you my exit strategy as well to make sure that it makes sense. And of course, from your end, it's the extra interest that you would be getting. Now, if all that money stays within the RRSPs, it's not like you get an extra paycheck to go buy a, a boat or anything like that. It's going to stay under the RRSP umbrella, but it is a nice way to put your money to work and get a higher return. Why not? Obviously, it's a way for me to passively invest in real estate without having to do with toilets and tenants, that kind of stuff, right? 
Yes, although you don't have ownership of the actual property, you're getting interest on it, but yes, you're bang on. So, I mean, even ourselves as investors, sometimes, and I see that with many of our students, you get to a certain point where not everybody wants a thousand units. Um, you know, after a while, after 50 or after 100, after 20 or after everybody's different, you may get to a point where, oh, you don't want necessarily more doors, but you want to take that money and lend it out more passively. So it's exactly that. You're not dealing with tenants or you're not dealing with property managers um, and all that. And of course, in real estate, like we have a lot of doors, but we don't deal with tenants ourselves. That can also be outsourced, but that's a personal choice. When I first started, we used to do everything. <laughs> ourselves, including the cleaning. So I was very, very hands-on because we were quite tight on funds, to be, just be honest. But as we grew our portfolio and we started making more cash flow, I was able to start slowly delegating more and more of these tests. Yeah, for sure. And that frees up your time, obviously, when you can do that, right? Well, exactly. Like I remember my first cleaner and I spent $80 and Oh, that was hard because it was like $80. I worked really hard for my $80. But then I realized, wait a second, if during that time, I can do something that I really love instead. Or during that time, I spent a couple of hours on the internet or a negotiated deal that's going to make me 100K down the road. Hmm, my time was best spent, you know, doing that instead. For sure. I had a similar mindset shift. I used to try to do everything myself, not pay anybody for anything. I would cut my dog's own hair and he had a terrible haircut. My kids would <laughs> make fun of me and my dog. And uh, I finally got to the point where I'm like, that's 45 minutes of my time. I'm just sending them to a groomer and just start delegating and paying people. And that way you can buy back, you know, time that you need to, you know, well, you're doing for the same other things. Thing. Yeah. You're doing the same thing as what I'm doing with money, other people's money. You're leveraging other people's time. You're making a win-win, right? They're happy. They're getting paid for those chores as well. I get it for me uh, as well. It was so hard to let go of that. And I think it's often the way where we're being raised. Nothing wrong with the way we were raised, but that's all that they knew. So that's what they taught us. And and it's hard to let go of uh, your hard-earned money when you're getting started. But you really have to think about your return on your own time. For sure. Are there any government rules or regulations that you maybe see changes or uh, like with using OPM? Is there anything that might be kind of on the government radar that could impact it? Um, right now, I mean, nothing on owner financing. No, I haven't seen anything that would change. And if it would, obviously, I would follow government regulations and kind of shift accordingly. But right now, no, I mean, owner financing, we're still doing it. We're using promissory note. You can still use secured funds as well. So as of right now, no. And how about on the lending side? So let's say I walk into a big bank and they ask, okay, you know, here's your deposit. Where did you get your deposit from? And I just tell them, oh, this is from so-and-so's RRSPs. How are they going to view that? And They won't. They're not going to do it. <laughs> so yeah, if you're going to the big banks and don't lie, like that's the thing. Be honest. Be honest with people. Be honest with your lenders. Be honest with the banks. Be honest with your financial institutions. If you're going to your bank and you say, I'm going to use, you know, so-and-so's RSPs by the property, they're going to say no. And that's their regulations. And that's okay. So you need to use financial institutions who are open to creative financing. The big five banks are not. Now, once you go through the life cycle of the deal, right? So using other people's money, you go to financial institutions who are open to creative financing after you get the lift out of the building, then you might want to do a refi. At that point, you can bring it back to an A lender, to the banks, and that's fine because now you don't have a second mortgage attached to it. Yeah, that makes sense. And then how do you go about managing maybe investors' expectations? I mean, there's a few things. When I started, this is where even as an investor, it's important to be flexible, right? So when I first started, 
I would, even if somebody had $20,000 to invest with me, like, because the trust wasn't quite there yet, because I didn't have the large portfolio, I might borrow smaller loans type of thing. Now we do only take, you know, bigger loans just because it's a little bit less work for us, less people to communicate with. And we just communicate, you know, what's the expectation. Obviously, it's our property. We make all the decisions on the property. We'll give updates, of course. Honestly, the majority of our lenders are very, very silent. They know I pay them back. They know I pay them on time. You know, I don't miss payments. And if for some reason, I don't I'm trying to think if it ever happened, if they need to pay back early, I can't remember. But, but yeah, make sure to pay them on time. Never, ever miss a payment. Because <laughs> that's going to build trust, right? I think at the beginning, right? If you miss a payment, well, what's going to happen? They're going to be, oh my gosh, they know what they're doing. Why are they not paying me? So don't miss payments, especially if they're brand new to you at the beginning. Communicate with them. Hey, all is well. Like what I would do, for example, in some of my properties, I would send a quick email or a quick phone call and say, hey, yeah, I just wanted to let you know I finished the renovations in the one unit, you know, no, no changes elsewhere, but this tenant ended up moving out. I did this and this and this. It's, I predict it's going to increase my value by X amount. Just wanted to give you a quick update. Boom. You know, it took me five minutes to give them an update. And now they're very satisfied because they're like, oh, okay. And as people know, sometimes you're like, hey, I don't need any more updates, Mel. I, I know you guys are a good type of thing. So the trust comes over time but if somebody's brand new to you especially at the beginning let them know that hey if you you're feeling uncomfortable or you have a question it's okay to reach out to yeah that's great info i'd like to kind of switch over and let's we'll talk about your guys's coaching program sure um so what are some mindset shifts you guys typically see with investor students that they kind of need to change in order to uh, be successful with these type of strategies yeah i mean number one they need to understand good debt can be a good thing, right? So they need to be open to creative financing, using other people's money, and that it's a win-win. It's not just you that's going to win. It's not just Melanie. When I buy properties that wins here, my lenders are going to win as well, which really makes it a very positive thing to do, right? I'm, if I'm beautifying my properties, my tenants are happy. If I'm borrowing money at X amount and they're happy with their returns, they're happy. I'm buying these properties, none of my own money, no joint venture partners. I cancel from day one. I get to pass it on to my kids if I wish to do so. So everyone that I'm dealing with essentially is winning. So the mindset shift when it comes to with our students, it's a huge community. We have about 1,500 students. So just being inside the Action Family community is pretty amazing. Like some people post deals. Some people lend money to other students. Some people work on base where they're from, for example, where we have a lot of students from Alberta and Manitoba, BC, like, you know, all of every province in Canada, you know, so the network based on where they're from or where they're investing. A lot of our students are investing cross-provincially. More and more of our students are investing in the States as well now. Some are starting to invest like we are in different countries. So just being inside a, a positive network of people taking action and sharing their successes, which is really powerful because it just keeps you motivated to continue to do so. And of course, just being able to have access to Dave and I. I mean, Dave and I were very, very hands-on with our students. We're the ones answering all their questions. Dave doing his live um, here shortly with the Action Family as well, where he answers everybody's questions. So you're not paired off with somebody else. And that's something that was really, really important to Dave and I when we created the Action Family is that at the end of the day, you know, we're the ones that bought over 240 units. We're the ones that made a lot of mistakes, admittedly. We're the ones that had some struggles, but we pushed through it, we found solutions and had a lot of successes as well. So we thought it was really, really important if we remain very hands-on with our students. So, and the neat thing about it, it's in a group setting where you can ask me unlimited amount of questions, but you're also going to be learning from somebody else and you go, oh, wait a second, I never thought about doing this. And you can start implementing it as well. So almost like a mastermind group. 
way. Yeah, well, yeah, like I mean, essentially, there's three portions. There's one where it's all the videos, all the documents. You get my cash flow matrix with the exit strategy. You get my due diligence list. You get my promissory note. We talk business structure, property management, how to find deal, how to analyze it, how to build your team. You know, all those we call it the foundation. It's called the OPM Action System. So you get all the videos and documents, which is the foundation. And then the second part is where you get access to Dave and I inside a private Facebook group, unlimited Q&A and live sessions as well every single week. And then you also get the third pillar is where you'll be part of the Action Family community where you can just network with other students. Awesome. And then who do you find from having all these students is typically the most successful? Does it come down to a mindset in the Those students? who have a big why. Absolutely. Mindset is huge. I often interview my own students on our YouTube channel and, you know, mindset is very huge or people that have a strong why. And actually, that's how I pretty much start off my program is identifying your why and reversing engineering your goals. Like it's been proven that 80 and now it's even higher than that, apparently 80 percent of success is determined by mindset. Whether you think you can or think you can, you're right. I have this conversation with my kids all the time. Um, and, and mindset is huge. And once you identify your why and you decide that. You know, you want to join my mentoring program. Why is that important to you? What, what are you trying to achieve here? If they really have it, I just want money. Nah, that won't keep you driven. But if it's maybe, you know, I'm tired, I'm tired of working all the time or I don't see my kids or I just want to travel or I just want to have the flexibility or if you have a very strong why and you really feel it, those are students that just, you know, and the reason they are successful is because they do watch all my videos. They ask us questions. They attend the lives or they watch a replay of it, right? So they take action essentially, right? Because they have a strong mindset. Yeah, for sure. Such great information. Now, at the end of the podcast, I'm just going to hit you with some more personal rapid fire type questions. Okay, so what's an app or software you use either personally or in your business that you couldn't live without? Uh, Slack. (laughs) I have a very, very large team. For those who follow us on social media, you'll know that we're all over social media. We post a lot. We do a lot of things. But it's definitely not just Mel and Dave. We have a very large team behind the scenes. And most of my team members are located, I think we're seven different time zones to my entire team. So we're many different countries. So having a communication platform that works for us where you can either leave voice notes or type it out or search and stay organized in different channels, this works really, really well. That's cool. I haven't even heard of that. So Slack. Slack, so, yeah. Okay. yeah. And then what's a book or a movie you uh, would recommend? 10x by Grant Cardone, book or audiobook, whatever you prefer. You know, that it really helped me when I was younger. I remember I was recently separated. I was previously married and I was separated. And I remember, you know, going through that whole, you know, I want more for myself and more for my kids. And I told myself, by the time I'm 40, I'm going to have 10 properties. And then I started telling people that. And they all said, Mel, you're crazy. Why would you want to do that? You're going to have, you know, tenants and all these things. And then after often listening to the audiobook 10X from Cardone, it just allowed me to think bigger. And then I continued to have that goal of 10 by 40. By the time I turned 40, I had 27 properties. You know, it just allowed me to think bigger because I naturally was thinking bigger and kept me focused on doing so. Yeah, amazing. And then personally, outside of the investment world, what type of activities do you guys like doing? Yeah, well, I'm a mom. Uh, that's number one, of course. So we're always doing a lot of activities. We love to travel. So we're in Costa Rica last month at our properties. We're off to Mexico next week. So we do a lot of traveling. As far as activities, my little guy's in hockey. So I'm officially a hockey mom where there's lots okay. of cheering and all that. And uh, Dave and I, we, yeah, we just like to hang out. I mean, we work out every day together. We have our own gym here. So work out together, sauna together, and, and just kind of yeah, hang out. We often go out in restaurants and, and all that too. 
Nice. And then you guys are speaking at the multifamily conference in May. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Very excited. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Greg Cardone's going to be there. So yeah, so super excited. We're going to be speaking on stage about creative financing, buying properties on your own money, and no joint venture partners. A little bit about what we touched on today. And uh, yeah, so I'm not sure which day we're presenting yet, but I know it's going to be uh, an amazing event. I wasn't there last year, uh, unfortunately, but uh, one of my girlfriends got married last year. I think that's why I wasn't able to make it, but super excited to be there and being one of the uh, speakers. Very exciting. We're going yeah, to have a large booth when people come out of the room. So they'll be able to come, uh, yeah, come say hi and ask us questions. And we'll try to be there the majority of the weekend. Awesome. And then what's the best way for people to get a hold of you guys online? Yeah. So we're all over social media. We're on Instagram, we're on YouTube, we're uh, TikTok, Facebook. So, and it's always Investor Mel Dave. So at Investor Mel Dave, you'll be able to follow us there. Okay. And there'll be links in the show notes as well. Well, it was great having you on the show, Mel. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge. Yeah, thank you so much. Yes, well, thank you so much for having me. I hope to see you at the conference. And um, if ever I do plan on going to Alberta in the near future, this is where you can crop, right? <laughs> Definitely. And, and wait maybe another two to three months before you come to Calgary because the weather still kind of sucks here. Okay, there we go. Well, I, I'm used to it. I'm in Ontario. So. <laughs> <laughs> True, Northern Ontario, yeah, for yeah. sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Corey. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent in Calgary, Alberta. I'm also an entrepreneur, Red Seal electrician, and I hold a Master Home Inspection Certification. If you're thinking about investing in the Calgary area, please reach out and let me put my real estate expertise to work for you. I can be reached at 587-893-2272. Follow me on Instagram at PeckfordCorey, or my website is CoreyPeckford.com. Plus, we have a Facebook group. It's Calgary Real Estate Investing Group, so Craig for short. Please follow that. If you're getting great value from this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.